Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really thrilled today to introduce my podcast guest for our show this afternoon. Jeff DeGraff's life reads like an innovation playbook. The pages are speckled with failures followed by great successes, all because of the mantra he adopted at an early age from icon Walt Disney, keep moving forward. Jeff knows how to innovate because he has been through the ringer and rolled with the punches, each time adding a new, better and cleverer play than the last to his dossier. Jeff's creative and direct take on making innovation really happen has made him a world-renowned thought leader and have prompted his clients and colleagues to dub him as the Dean of Innovation. He is also the co-author of multiple books, including The Innovation Code, The Creative Power of Constructive Conflict, and The Creative Mindset, Mastering the Six Skills That Empower Innovation. I'm really excited to be speaking with Jeff today and hearing his thoughts on constructive conflict and bravery at work. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. And, you know, I stole your bio off of LinkedIn, which I'm sure only does a small portion of justice to your fantastic career. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about your career and really how you're interacting in the marketplace today. Well, to, to be honest, I'm kind of the Forrest Gump of innovation. You know, I just have been in the right place at the right time a lot of times. And uh, and I do consider myself to be kind of insanely lucky. Uh, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, one of those uh, impossible stories. You couldn't make a movie about it. I grew up in HUD House. I came to college as a teamster. And somehow I got all the way through my PhD in a very short period of time. So I went from being the jock. I was, a, I was an all-everything wrestler. And then at 25, I was a, I was Dr. Jeff, and I won some awards, and I was brought to Ann Arbor to work in the medical school because my area is uh, the what, what we would call the precursor to artificial intelligence. And um, I met a guy. <laughs> I met a guy in a hippie restaurant who owned a pizza company, and it was a $20 million pizza company. And five years and billions of hours later, uh, we sold Domino's Pizza to Mitt Romney at Bain Capital. So I was 29 decided I was going to retire. And people like me don't do very well that way. You know, that lasted about, you know, two months. It sounds then, great, but yeah, may not yeah, really, it uh, may not really happen. So I, um, I was offered to teach at Michigan. This is 30 some years ago at the University of Michigan, where I've been ever since. I remember 
at the beginning telling the telling the person who brought me in, you know, MBAs are dull, drab, and awful. You can hear them think. And they said, yeah, we know. That's why we want you to be here. So, you know, this was the beginning of all of that stuff. And I built these innovatriums and I, you know, and I started doing all this consulting on these big projects. And and uh, it just kind of snowballed into sort of a thing on its own. But it's really, it really was a village. You know, one of the guys who I work with went on to be the head of NASA. And one of the guys I work with, uh, yeah, one of my students founded Google. And you just get lucky. I mean, I'd, I'd love to tell you it was, you know, purposeful, but it wasn't. It just was. Yeah, and it's never the horse you think that's going to win, Ed. It's it's always some horse you weren't paying attention to. So yeah, I, I'm kind of an improbable person to be where I'm at. I'm the youngest of all the people created the field, and what makes it so difficult these days is they're all retired or passed away, and I'm kind of what's left. <laughs> you know, I'm the one that's now the elder statesman. When I was, you know, the other side, I was the boy wonder coming in. Well, when you look back 30 years, Jeff, to when you first got to the University of Michigan, this was kind of pre-innovation and pre-artificial intelligence, et cetera. How have things changed? What was it like back then? And what is it like today? Well, it's interesting. I built the first Innovatrium almost 20 years ago. And then, you know, you see like WeWork and the Stanford D School then comes online like five, six years later. So the, the good news is it caught on the whole sort of you know, what we call coins, collaborative open innovation networks, ecosystems, all that stuff. And I, I, I was very lucky in building Domino's. I worked on something called AppleNet when I was at Domino's because I wanted to build the distributed system. I was advisor at the time to, uh, to on one of Steve Jobs' committee, what was called AIS. Young people don't get applied integrated systems meant there wasn't any internet back then. So this is when we're trying to figure all this nonsense out. Is this and, the 1800s? Yeah, it feels like it. And, um, you know, it's funny, I got a few years ago, I got asked by PBS to advise on one of their American experiences about Silicon Valley, what it was like in the day. And, you know, these guys get together and, you're, and it's hard for young people to get. There's no object orientation. There's nothing you carry in your pocket. There's no ability to, to broadcast video. And what's happened now is that the things that we worked on 30 some years ago are now table stakes. You know, collaborative sites are everywhere. You know, uh, you know, minimal viable product, how people jumpstart. Um, but what's what's still fascinating to me, I do a lot of work. I'm building the ecosystem for the United States military. And what's still fascinating to me is at the end of the day, the one thing that still rules that matters more than anything is mindset. It really is a leadership and, and what comes out of that culture issue. You can have all the tools in the world if you can't think through it, if you can't think in a different way. If your dominant worldview is so strong that, you know, all your Facebook friends like you and that's all you, you know, you live for, you know, you're, you're probably going to be incapable of really harnessing your cognitive mobility and getting to that next place. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the word mindset because some of our past guests when talking about bravery in the workplace talk about the individual piece of being braver, right? What you need to do and the way you need to approach it and the different ways and styles and ideas that might be there, but also kind of the mindset or culture that needs to exist, right? It might be easier to be braver if culturally it is a place that 
welcomes bravery, and it may be harder to be brave if it's a place that doesn't welcome bravery. You know, um, anybody who's ever gotten an email from me will know that my signature line is vision, courage, freedom. And courage is a really important word. And I don't really know how to frame this. And that is, I, a lot of people tell me I'm brave. I hear that all the time. And I don't feel brave at all. I just don't. Um, I think I think the difference is once you're once you have a vision of yourself and your vision is uh, self-actualizing, it's what's called self-authorizing behavior. You chase things. And to do that, you got to get other people out of your head. And that takes the brave part is getting them out of your head. What are you willing to give up to get to the next place? And I, I, I firmly believe, there's a lot of research around this too. I really believe that the great innovators are not particularly more intelligent than anybody else. I just, I don't see it, right? I think what happens is they're more persistent and they exhibit a lot of this self-authorizing behavior, which means you're, you're having to be brave with yourself. It's less about other people. So to me, the dark nights of the soul aren't about somebody's mad at me or whatever. And that's, in my line of work, that happens all the time, right? That's a daily occurrence. The hard part is, you know, am I confident in what I'm doing? Am I, do I believe I can carry on through this? Do I think I can get to the end zone on this? And to be honest, if you're an innovator, you only, you're, you're going to succeed a third of the time at best. The rest well, of the time, you, you just have to be comfortable. Right, right. And when you think about other people's perception of you, you mentioned that other people think you're brave and you don't. You know, what is it you think they're seeing or believing in you or about you that gives them that impression? I think they think it's effortless superiority and it's anything but. I think it's like being a professional. I mean, when when you talk to a real professional, you know, you're going to pay them top dollar to be a oral surgeon or a lawyer. And all you see is the day that they showed up, the day, you know, the day that they performed the task or shipped the work. What you're not seeing is the countless hours and, and failures and mistakes and sanding down that, uh, you know, that, uh, that rough surface that went into that. And I, I think that's, you know, I, I think the difference between being sort of an amateur and a pro isn't effortless superiority, but it's also not showing the arduous path that you went through. It's delivering the goods because that's why you're there. Well, I think a lot of people can relate to effortless superiority uh, uh, associated with the game of golf, right? You watch a golf game and they're unbelievable, right? And you're like, why can't I be that good? I play golf five to six times a year, right? And it's like, dude, you have no idea what these individuals go through in order to, in that moment, hit the ball beautifully. All you're seeing is that moment, not everything behind it. You know, Ed, I have a great story around this. Sure. My, senior, my senior year in high school as an All-State wrestler. Uh, my freshman year in high school, my uh, sophomore year in high school, my junior year in high school, three different people were All-State wrestlers in front of me. So I basically had the stuffing beat out of me for three years. And then eventually you figure a few things out. It's not necessarily that you're a better physical specimen or a better wrestler. It just means that you've learned the trade and you've endured. Yeah. And it, and it looks like you had it in the bag the whole time, which, <laughs> which you didn't. Which maybe you didn't. So Jeff, in your book, The Innovation Code, you, you talk a little bit about something called constructive conflict. 
And in it, you give a couple of definitions about it. And one is that you think of constructive conflict as positive tension. And I love, quite frankly, that word, positive tension versus conflict, because for whatever reason, culturally, when people hear the word conflict, they instantly have a very negative, uh, heavy uh, you know, impression of it, whereas positive tension sounds, I think, a little bit more like the uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Can you tell us a little bit about why, especially maybe as it pertains to innovation or entrepreneurialism, about yeah. positive tension? Well, one, I, you know, I'm from, I, I wrote a piece years ago. I'm one of the original LinkedIn influencers, one of the original 25 influencers. And I wrote a piece years ago called Changing Into My Christmas Culture. And my grandparents were European. So I, we would go to around Chicago, and every my grandfather was Hungarian, my grandmother was German, and you'd be around hand waving people, you know, people who were spicy people. And uh, my my grandfather ended up he had a sixth grade education, he ended up making parts for um, the Apollo missions, he space space uh, program, which he was very very proud of. But then I would go back to Kalamazoo where I grew up, and everybody I have a good Dutch name, everybody was Dutch, everybody was really calm you know, very, very, you know, very level-headed, rational, a very different group of people. And what I started to realize was that I, I, I had two Jeffs there. I knew how to be different. And what's, what I think happened when I got to college is I noticed something really interesting, which was the history of innovation in America is the history of immigration. You know, think about, you know, Tesla or Zillard or Cyrus McCormick or Isaac Singer. Think about all the people who invented our country. Think about last year. We had six Nobel Prize winners. Not a single one was born here. Right. So I started thinking about the role of diversity, the democratization of creativity and innovation, which I think is a very American idea. We're not particularly we don't score better than our European colleagues, but we seem to we seem to have an economic ability to to innovate something we're able to do and i started studying very early on or paying attention to these what are called creativity clusters they're sometimes called the geography of genius why a handful of places produce almost all the intellectual property in this country and around the world incidentally and what they have in common is they're extremely diverse now the conventional wisdom when i started studying this remember remember in building dominoes was like this it was a you know it was like it was crazy the early apple days were crazy you know and there's a lot of pushing and shoving but there's that's respectful pushing and shoving in a polite way in a way that drives the other person forward hybrids, better ideas, new ideas. And once people get in that environment where they're not crushed by somebody who says, hey, wait a minute, maybe there's a better idea here. Or I think you can do better than that, Jeff. Once you get in an environment where you're encouraging, it's a positive pushing forward, right? Then you start seeing amazing things. And my favorite example just happened. You know, think about how our government completely whiffed on COVID. By any objective measure, it was a categorical failure. And then think about how these creativity clusters got together informally. You know, big pharma didn't start it. They're biotechs. You know, the biotech. Uh, you know, the biotech guys knew some people from college. You make a couple calls. You get a fintech person. You know, if a VC gets involved, the next thing you know, you got a group. Five hundred ninety-five of these entered phase one trials at the at the at uh, the CDC, <clears throat> um, the NIH, uh, lo looking for FDA approval. 
116 made it through phase one, 54 through phase two. We got four that, that are an emergency in, in phase three that we're putting in people's arms. And something that usually took 10 years is now taking 10 months. Now, this is what I need your listeners to get. What happens in these clusters isn't everybody agrees. What happens is everybody, because there's a lot of diversity, you need diversity, disagrees about things. And what you're working towards is a, you know, a, a, a scalable solution, a valuable solution. And so when I started studying this, and I actually did a lot of research on this with my wife, Stanny, who writes with me, and she's the one who did all the kind of big research studies, um, we found out that uh, it predicted stock prices, right? So our, our business has been for the last, I don't know, 30 years has been large companies. We've been in over half of all the Fortune 500 companies. And the reason is they have a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that have to come together and there's a lot of tension. So what I need your listeners to understand is there's two types of, of conflict. The first type of conflict is what you see going on between our, our, our elected officials right now. And of course, nothing happens that way. It's totally destructive. It's personally debilitating. It, they're ad hominem arguments. We're talking about people, which is completely wrong. We get prejudice out of this. It's exactly what we don't want, right? On the other hand, you know, think about Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, Lennon and McCartney. What you're going to see in high performing organizations are people have conflict and they figured out how to harness it. The minute Lennon and McCartney stopped harnessing their constructive conflict, neither one was as great as they were together. And you can see this in companies great restaurants, sports teams, you know, so I think about, think about dynasties, the University of Chicago Economics Department, 89 Nobel Prize winner, the All Blacks of New Zealand. And I've interviewed a lot of these people. And what you're going to see is I disagree, but I have great, uh, I have great fond regard for you. I respect you, Ed, and I'm listening to you. So that's going to take us to the next place. And that's the difference. Well, there is a big difference, and I tell this, uh, I share this observation with many of my clients that there's a significant difference between understanding and agreement. And unfortunately, oftentimes we go for agreement and we get stuck in this debate about agreeing. And, you know, if you and I felt different about gun control or abortion or you know, any of those topics, there may be nothing I can say that can get you to agree with me. I can certainly get you if you're intelligent to understand my perspective and why I feel the way that I feel, but agreement is a whole nother different level. We're going to pause in our conversation with Jeff DeGrasse and ask that you join us for our next podcast where we will continue our conversation and hear more from Jeff about bravery at work. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week and we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at bebraveatwork.com or download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963, or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, electronically, and in audio everywhere online. If you have something to say, yet are not saying it, you have something to do, yet are not doing it, now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.